On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like the a path. They clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein. And this morning, I have the pleasure of sitting down with a really old friend. Uh, In fact, we were just talking in the parking lot this morning about how old we've gotten over the last, what, 12, 13 years, I think, uh, since I've seen you last. But um, Supervisor Laney is uh, a paramedic for Grady EMS in Atlanta. And she's been on the job for 10 years, and you've been a supervisor for two years, and I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Um, So I'll shut up now and turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Hey, Phil. Um, So I've been at Grady for all of my paramedic career, actually. Um, I started in this field, actually. Um, I graduated high school probably around 2005, and we took this aptitude test, basically, that is they score you on what you would most likely like to do, basically. Uh, And so uh, I scored really high on the public safety portion of this aptitude test, and they got me in touch with, it's called the Explorers Program. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's it's an extension of the Boy Scouts of America. So they do, like, police explorers, fire explorers, and EMS explorers as well. So they do basic first aid. They have this long um, competition that they do every year where they meet with um, different states and they do um, basic first aid, they do competitions, they do whatever. And so I got I got involved with that and, 
in high school and I fell in love with EMS and that was my first taste at like 15 years old. And I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. That's absolutely what I want to do. So I went to EMT school in EMTI school. So we don't even have those in Georgia anymore, but in 2007 and then a couple years later, 2009, I got my paramedic and in 2010, I started at Grady and I've been there ever since. So the story I'm going to share with you guys today is um, ran a call, uh, just Southwest of the city. And it was June around June. So kind of hot. So kind of right around this time, super muggy. We're sitting at post, my partner and I are sitting at post and we get a call for a GSW. Um, so gunshot wound comes out, um, over the information that we get, the CAD system that we have. Um, it, basically gives us information about what we might be going to. And it says on the CAD that it's um, a gunshot wound to the head and the information all came from PD, which means PD was likely already on scene. Um, We typically stage for gunshot wounds, uh, but reading the CAD information, we realized that PD was already on scene, so it was safe for us to enter. Um, Honestly, I went back and looked at the times. It took us about seven minutes to get there. So we were super close and... Uh, once I arrived on scene with my partner, uh, it was chaos, obviously, and families outside, probably five or six family members are outside and fire, uh, the fire department got there just about the same time that we did. And when we arrived on scene, um, the police were there, fire department made it there just the same time that we did. And the family was also there. And the only thing I really picked up was the kid was young and the scream, the, we call it the mama whale is what I, it, you don't forget that. That's no, not, that is not a sound that can, is reproducible with regular screams and it never, ever goes away. And so they are literally screaming and, you know, they're everywhere and PD's trying to get them, you know, to back up. And it all happens so quickly. Um, with throwing them on the stretcher, throwing the patient on the stretcher and buckling them in and trying to get them in there. And all I knew was we had to leave. I look over and I see this kid. He's young. He's really young. And there's, you know, copious amounts of blood coming from his mouth. He's super sweaty. He's not responsive and he's completely apneic. And honestly, we had to go. (laughs) That's exact. That's the only thing I knew was put him on the stretcher, buckle him in, get in the truck we're leaving. Our unseen time was eight minutes, if that. Um, right after seeing this this kid and seeing that he's apneic, I knew the airway was going to be an issue. And I knew that I had to get something in there um, pretty immediately. So we were in the ambulance type ambulances, which I didn't mind because I'm short. But so we get in and one firefighter jumps in and I'm sitting in the captain's chair and I've got the the suction, there's a hard tip suction and I've got that in my hands and I'm looking down and I'm like, I got a suction. So I start suctioning with the hard tip catheter and I quickly realized that was not going to be enough. So I actually took the hard tip catheter off and was trying to get some of the the larger clot. I'd like to think that that was probably something I taught you in paramedic school. I definitely (laughs) believe that had to have come from somewhere because instinctually I was like, that's not going to be big enough for what I had going on. 
And for anyone who doesn't know, the captain's chair actually sits right at the patient's head in the back of the ambulance. So it gives you really good access to, to work on that airway from where you're sitting. Yes, absolutely. So I've got all my equipment there and I'm, I'm looking at this kid, this young kid, and he's still sweaty. He's tacking. He's, his heart rate is very fast. Uh, it's in the 200s and he's still not breathing. And I tried to use a a back valve mask, which was what we would use to try and get some air into the lungs. It was not working. So copious amounts of suction. And I realized very quickly that I was not going to be able to visualize an airway. So we used um, an, an eye gel is I just put an eye gel in and just kept suctioning. And as I'm looking um, to see if there's any other trauma or anything, I've noticed that he is a, the GSW came in up underneath the chin. Um, and then through the, side of the tongue and then up through the soft palate is kind of what it looked like. It kind of went up that way. And then I noticed that he had a, like a hematoma over the right side of his head here, but it was not bleeding or anything. And I was like, okay, it's that it is what it is. And I do a quick look over of his body and make sure there's no other trauma. And I just knew we had to go. He is now breathing much better after I've put this airway in. Um, and the, bag valve mask is now going in with a lot better compliance and I'm rechecking and checking and the fireman that was there got an IV and this kid starts to dry up a little bit which is good his heart rate starts to come down because he's now got some oxygen in there and if you don't know me uh, you would never know that I was nervous but I was really nervous um, about this because one it's a kid you know two it's you know, I got this airway issue that could fail at any time. And my next recourse would be something that I can't necessarily see blind, uh, would be to actually intubate them to get a more secure airway. I just know we had to go, but I'm looking at the vital signs and I'm talking to this kid. And part of the way that I cope with stress is to talk to my patients about what I'm doing, even if they're unconscious, even if they're in cardiac arrest. I'm like, hey, hon, hey, buddy, hey, you know, whoever, I'm going to start an IV on you. You're going to feel a little pinch just as if they were, you know, conscious. And that helps me to remember what I need to be doing, what I need to be doing next. And I remember sitting in the captain's chair and this kid is, you know, I'm, I'm breathing for him, got the oxygen going. And I remember like using my thumb to like, I guess, brush his cheek to just, I guess, I don't know, pet him or caress him. Just talking to him like, man, we were five minutes away. Um, and you could have called me. You could have talked to me. Because on scene they mentioned that it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Um, and to be so young, honestly, that uh, that was not my first young you know, suicide that I'd had. I've, I've had a pretty bad run with them, to be honest with you. And so I'm like, hey, you, you could have called, you know, we could have had a conversation. We could have done this before we got to this point. And I'm talking to this kid and he's, I didn't think he could hear me at all, honestly. And one tear comes down and that could have been anything. I didn't have time to think about it. It's one of those, like, I can't think about what's happening right now because I've got stuff to do. And honestly, we were not very far from the hospital and we, we were there and about 10 minutes, literally about 10 minutes. We were right off the highway and I'm explaining to him what's going to happen when we get into the trauma center and, um, just talking to him. He didn't really move, didn't really do didn't anything really. Um, we get into the trauma center. We put him over. Of course, when you call into this trauma center, 
there's 30 people in the room all waiting for you to get there. And we arrived and we got him switched over and I gave my report. There really wasn't much to it, honestly, because it was just the one GSW, the one gunshot wound, and there's no other trauma. You know, I got the airway, the heart rate had started coming down and I had to let them do what they were, they were going to do. And I just had to get out of the way. And I remember leaving the trauma room and just, I basically just slid down the wall. I'm covered. I looked down and I'm covered in blood. I got blood in my cargo pockets from just, you know, there's stuff everywhere. And I'm going, okay, that part of it is over, but the hardest part is having to sit down, write your report, remember everything that's happening, um, go through all the details to make sure you have everything in order. You know, my partner's taking care of the truck and all that. I never had to worry about any of that. But I remember going, why do I keep doing this to myself over and over again? Like the the suicide part of it, honestly, in retrospect, that bothers me so bad. I don't know why um, that particular thing, because we I see a lot of trauma. I see a lot of very gruesome trauma and that never bothers me as much as the self-inflicted ones. Cause you can, you can feel it. Like it's, you can cut the air with a knife really. And at 15, 14 years old, that's how is your brain working that it, that's where you get to and like that's the solution and we know when when kids are young they don't have all of that fully developed and some of that carries into adulthood for some people uh so a kid to think that that's his last the only thing that i would be better off just completely gone and if he could have i mean maybe he did hear his mom scream like that you know we didn't take any family members we didn't take anybody with us to the hospital we literally loaded and go and we were at the hospital and i i didn't think anything past that. I got cleaned up and I'm like, I, I still have a job to do. And that's the the crazy thing about EMS is the next patient that you get doesn't care what you just did. They don't understand what you just did. They don't understand that you're upset. They don't understand that you are trying to process what you've just, you know, gone through. All they know is they called you for help and they want you to be on your game and to be with it and to to treat them the way that you would have treated them had nothing happened previously. And so um, <laughs> getting everything cleaned up, we get back to the truck. We actually go back in service. I run a couple calls and this whole time I'm thinking, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep exposing myself to this? Because it, it damages you in the long run. You don't think about it. Obviously you don't think about that, but it's, it gets harder sometimes to shove that down and just keep going. Um, and I think a lot of times in our industry, it's, it's actually a lot better now that they, they want people to talk. They want people to have the critical incident stress. They want people to have the, um, to talk about what they've experienced and how to process it. And I think that's actually really important that we're starting to do that now, but it's still really hard to to do that, to actually come up with words as to why you would be doing, you know, keep exposing yourself, I guess, to the trauma. Uh, but I typically don't go back and check. Like I don't, if, if I take someone in and they're in really bad shape, I, I don't go asking because I know what I did and I know, you know, they got to do what they do. And I, I just don't, I don't typically go back and check. And 
I had taken a couple more patients, honestly, to to the hospital after my gunshot wound call. And I didn't go back to the trauma room. I didn't go back and check on anything. And I'm walking out to the ambulance bay to go back to my truck. Um, and this was at the time when this particular hospital was doing construction on the ambulance ramp. And there were only like three or four bays. So as soon as you offloaded your patient, you had to take them up to, you had to take your ambulance back up to the top of the hill so other people could come in. The security guard wasn't even out there. And (laughs) I'm walking out and this car comes like screeching into the ambulance bay. Now this happens quite a bit. This is a huge uh, hospital and people get dumped out at the ambulance bay quite a bit. And I'm thinking, Oh, here we go. Another, another gunshot wound. (laughs) Somebody's fixing to drop out and it's a man and a woman. And the woman opens the door on the passenger side and I look and this, this woman is like half naked and there's a baby's head coming out. Okay. I have my tough book in my hand. Okay, I have no ambulance. I have no, I don't even have gloves on. And here's this baby's head coming out. And I'm like, uh, I'm looking around going, is anybody going to, nope, I guess it's me. So uh, I go over, uh, it doesn't take much. She pushes this baby out. It's a boy. And the placenta still attached, the cord still attached, because I didn't have anything else. And I'm holding this kid. And um, in the middle of the ambulance bay, no one else is there. And I was like, this is why. This is why I do this. You know, this is the reason I had one go out. And in the same day, I just delivered a baby in in the ambulance bay. By the time the baby comes out and, um, you know, mom's trying to get out of the car at this point, um, they saw the, I guess the triage people saw, and they came out with a stretcher and put mom on the stretcher. I put baby on mom and they whisked them away. And here I am with blood on my arms again, but for a different reason this time. And it was like, this is why, this is why you're here. This is why you repeatedly expose yourself to all of this because it's, it's not all bad. You know, it's not all this, you know, you have those moments that remind you why you do well, you do. Um, that's that's my story. That's a good story, Lainey. <laughs> what was the outcome for the young man? So uh, I found later on, um, after the baby was born, I was like, let me go check on this kid. Maybe I'll get two wins. I was going to say, maybe maybe you'll be 2-0 and o for the day. <laughs> maybe I'll get two wins. So I go back and in the, in the same trauma room, and the mother is there, and same mama whale. <laughs> Not quite the same. You know, you mentioned the mama whale, and I'll jump in for real, real quick. But I remember, I mean, I was, I was a paramedic student. I was 19 years old, maybe 20 years old in, in New York. And they, they brought in a uh, CW Post college student who was driving a Ford Bronco. I was, I was a student. I remember all this. Uh, and he rolled it and was ejected, partially ejected. And they brought him in traumatic arrest. And I, was, I worked the traumatic arrest with the trauma team as a student. And we walked out, and the mom was in the, uh, in the waiting room and the doctors went out and told the mom that, you know, her son didn't survive. And I can, as soon as you said the mama whale, I could hear it clear as day. And you know, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. You just, it never, that, that scream, that, that pain, um, you just can't forget it. Mm-mm, absolutely not. So, um, when I walk back in the truck, she sees that it's me. And, you know, she just, she's like, she's hugging me and, and she was just saying thank you. And the 
the kid is there. He's still alive. Um, he's sedated, obviously. He's restrained to the bed. Um, his vital signs actually looked really good. Um, Mom said he hasn't moved. He hasn't done anything really at all. And I go, I go over to him, to the head of the stretcher, and I started rubbing his cheek again, just like I did in the ambulance on the way there, and I started talking to him. Uh, this kid tried to get out of the bed. Okay. Wow. He moved both of his arms. You know, he started picking up his feet and he was, he didn't, he never opened his eyes. He never said anything. It was nothing like that, but he knew it was me. He knew it was me talking to him, you know, cause I was saying sort of the same things. Hey, but I told you I was going to get you here. You're going to be okay. Your mom's here. Those types of things. He knew it was me. And she was like, that's the most he's, you know, moved at all. So he heard me. And that tear that I talked about, you know, he heard what I was saying then. Oh, he absolutely did. Oh, yeah. He yeah. knew exactly what was yeah. going on. He knew that I was there. And um, from what I remember them saying after they did the surgery and everything is they went in and repaired the soft palate. Um, and it was a small caliber bullet. So it went under the chin, uh, lacerated the tongue, went up the soft palate through the sinus cavity. And then it went around the eye, but came out in the top part of the head. It never entered the brain, and it never messed with any of his sight. So they did a little bit of reconstructive surgery on on the soft palate, but other than that, like he was, he's he's fine and has normal brain function and all that. And I'm hoping that he's somewhere off in college by now. Yeah. To be honest with you, well, it wasn't his time to go. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was uh, hate that I get exposed to stuff like that, but I'm, I'm glad that I am skilled enough to handle it when it comes. Yeah, I have no doubt that you are. <laughs> well, Lainey, that, that was, uh, I'm out of goosebumps listening to that story and shoot, I've been doing this for a long time, but, um, thank you for sharing that amazing story. Um, and, and I think the way you tied the, the young man to the baby was just, just really, a, a great narrative on the work that paramedics do every single day. We live for the wins, and uh, that was just a great way to tie it together. So, so thank you for being here, and thank you for being a guest and sharing that amazing story. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.